Today's reading is from Numbers chapter 11. Now the people began complaining openly before the Lord about hardship. When the Lord heard, his anger burned, and fire from the Lord blazed among them and consumed the outskirts of the camp. Then the people cried out to Moses, and he prayed to the Lord, and the fire died down. So that place was named Taberah, because the Lord's fire had blazed among them. The riffraff among them had a strong craving for other food. The Israelites wept again and said, Who will feed us meat? We remember the free fish we ate in Egypt, along with the cucumbers, melons, leeks, onions, and garlic. But now our appetite is gone. There's nothing to look at but this manna. The manna resembled coriander seed, and its appearance was like that of fidelity. The people walked around and gathered it. They ground it on a pair of grinding stones or crushed it in a mortar, then boiled it in a cooking pot and shaped it into cakes. It tasted like a pastry cooked with the finest oil. When the dew fell on the camp at night, the manna would fall with it. Moses heard the people, family after family, weeping at the entrance of their tents. The Lord was very angry, and Moses was also provoked. So Moses asked the Lord, Why have you brought such trouble on your servant? Why are you angry with me, and why do you burden me with all these people? Did I conceive all these people? Did I give them birth so you should tell me, carry them at your breast as a nanny carries a baby to the land that you swore to give their fathers? Where can I get meat to give all these people? For they are weeping to me. Give us meat to eat. I can't carry all these people by myself. They are too much for me. If you're going to treat me like this, please kill me right now if I have found favor with you. And don't let me see my misery anymore. The Lord answered Moses, Bring me 70 men from Israel known to you as elders and officers of the people. Take them to the tent of meeting and have them stand there with you. Then I will come down and speak with you there. I will take some of the spirit on you and put the spirit on them. They will help you bear the burden of the people so that you do not have to bear it all by yourself. Tell the people, consecrate yourselves in readiness for tomorrow and you will eat meat because you wept in the Lord's hearing. Who will feed us meat? We were better off in Egypt. The Lord will give you meat, and you will eat. You will eat, not for one day, or two days, or five days, or ten days, or twenty days, but for a whole month, until it comes out of your nostrils and becomes nauseating to you. Because you have rejected the Lord who is among you, and wept before him. Why did you ever leave Egypt? But Moses replied, I'm in the middle of a people with 600,000 foot soldiers, yet you say I will give them meat, and they will eat for a month. If flocks and herds were slaughtered for them, would they have enough? Or if all the fish in the sea were caught for them, would they have enough? The Lord answered Moses, Is the Lord's arm weak? Now you will see whether or not what I have promised will happen to you. Moses went out and told the people the words of the Lord. He brought 70 men from the elders of the people and had them stand around the tent. Then the Lord descended in the cloud and spoke to him. He took some of the spirit that was on Moses and placed the spirit on the 70 elders. And as the Spirit rested on them, they prophesied, but they never did it again. Two men had remained in the camp, one named Eldad and the other Medad. The Spirit rested on them. They were among those listed, but had not gone out to the tent, and they prophesied to in the camp. A young man ran to, and reported to Moses, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. Joshua, son of Nun, assistant to Moses since his youth, responded, Moses, my Lord, stop them. But Moses asked them, are you jealous on my account? If only all the Lord's people were prophets, then the Lord would place the Spirit on them. Then Moses returned to the camp along with the elders of Israel. A wind sent by the Lord came up and blew quail in from the sea. It dropped them all around the camp. They were flying three feet off the ground for about a day's journey in every direction. 
The people were up all that day and night and all the next day gathering the quail. The one who did the least gathered 50 bushels, and they spread them out all around the camp. While the meat was still between their teeth before it was chewed, the Lord's anger burned against the people, and the Lord struck them with a very severe plague. So they named that place Kilbroth Hatavah, because there they buried the people who had craved the meat. From Kilbroth Hatavah, the people moved on to Hezroth and remained there. The word of the Lord. Thank you for that reading, Jamie. The kids are invited to Kids Church. I'm wondering where my sermon is, and I found it. This Sunday finds us again in the book of Numbers. We've moved quite a bit. Uh, we're all the way up to chapter 11 now. We skipped quite a bit. What we talked about last week is what we found in those chapters between 1 through 10 is this period of stability for Israel, this period of, of finding orientation in the world. They had left slavery. They had left a place of, of sort of knowledge of what you're supposed to do and how you're supposed to act, but it was abusive and it was destructive and it was... Um, slavery unto them and that they were freed from that by the Lord as they walked through the Red Sea. What God has been doing for Israel is giving them this place of orientation and stability so that they can become his people. Now, if you remember back in Exodus two summers ago for us, um, two books back in the Bible too, um, the similar scene happened with manna and quail. It was before they had agreed to become God's covenant people, and God heard them and provided it for them. But this scene, it begins with that again, and it happens again, and yet God has a sort of frustration. Moses has frustration. They've agreed to be this covenant people, this holy nation of priests, these ones committed to the Lord after, before and after the golden calf episode, funny enough, and um, God is calling them forth to that. So that they can inhabit this promised land, so they could be in this place. So they had this period, which shakes up a lot in the Bible, from, from sort of Exodus 25 all the way until Numbers 10. It's a large portion, but it's actually a, a short portion of time. It's not as long as you would think. What they're finding in this time is what it means to be the holy people of God, to, to know that God is near, to know that God comes to them. And what happens is this, this fire comes and resides in the camp of God's holiness. That God is going to be with these people and they are going to be his body and his reflection out into the world. They're going to be his holy nation, his chosen ones. That's what they're called into. But today we find at the beginning of this passage is the murmurings. This is the, uh, uh, the Hebrew word for the murmurings. They begin to murmur against the Lord. They begin to, to sort of say that this is not what we thought we were getting into. They, they've listened to God, and the, the last thing we heard is that they're fine with the smoke, and they're going with the smoke, and they're going out of the camp. And what they begin to do is they begin to murmur against God instantly. It's only three days into the journey, really, that this murmuring begins. And one of the first things I want to say about this is I don't like giving the sermon that says, so how do we not be like the Hebrews in the wilderness? I like to give the sermon that says, how are we like the Hebrews, the Israelites in the wilderness, 
not how do we avoid being like that? How do you be better? Um, uh, a famous pastor I had the privilege of meeting and hanging out with once, but he gives a, a sermon on uh, Peter getting out of the boat to walk on water. And he was like, my life goal is to be the guy who gets out of the boat, walks in water, runs across the water, does all this stuff. And I don't want to be like Peter. And I was like, that is the worst way to preach that story. There's 12 of his friends in the boat. Only one guy gets out. How's the one guy who gets out of the boat the enemy? Um, and he walks on water, which according to like all of world history happened to him and Jesus. There's not like, I mean, you hit the top 8% of humanity or on the boat and the top whatever percent of humanity, period, overall. It's not a great thing, I think, to demean them. I think the lesson there is how are we like Peter? How are we ones who can get scared even when Christ is with us? And how does Christ meet us in that place? Or in the book of Numbers, it's like, how are we people whom God has done a mighty act for? And then yet, three days later, are wondering, what are we doing? How is this going for us? How are we going in this place in this world? So this is not my intention of the sermon to make it so that, like, here's ten steps we can make so that we don't end up like the Israelites in the, in the wilderness. Um, because it would be cheap and easy and probably a lie on top of that. Um, and I think there's more interesting things to say, but there's this other sort of vein of interpretation which is newer to me as, a, as sort of a preaching look at a Bible, but very, very old. Um, so in the first, second, third, fourth centuries, the early church looked at the story preserved for us in the book of Numbers. And this is, this is a title that sort of you can apply to the book of Numbers from Exodus 16.1, is that they enter the wilderness of sin, which at Exodus 16.1, it's right after they come out of the wilderness, or right through the sea, you're thinking, wilderness of sin? Bad things must come to them there, not realizing that they're the source of the bad things that come to them in the wilderness of sin. It is their sin that resides in this wilderness. But one of the things these, these early church fathers and mothers sort of looked at Numbers as is this, this effort of sort of purgation, of holiness for us, this way of stripping away for us this way in which we become the holy ones of God. That their journey in the wilderness represents our journeys in the wilderness. That their complaints represent our complaints in the wilderness. And, and what it is for us is to look at this as if it were an undoing for us as well. See, I often uh, prefer to preach objective, um, which is bigger, uh, outside of the subjective, which is the personal. And objectively, this is a story about God's bringing the people of Israel from the edge, from, from uh, Sinai, where they received the law, into the promised land in the struggles along the way. That's what it's about when this happened. But subjectively, and this is not something that you find people talking about in the early church, they don't think, well, am I talking objectively or subjectively? They just think, we're talking about how this story can be used for the holiness in our lives, that it can bring us to different places. And so this, this graph, which we looked at, or line, timeline is what it is, um, before, is that we have this sort of exodus generation that has come out of slavery. And what happens is this time in the wilderness represented in this box, and what happens in the next scene, the next murmuring after, actually there's, I've intended to, to preach on Moses and, uh, or Aaron, Aaron and Miriam's, Rebellion against Moses today too, but it just got I got had too much to say on the other stuff. So got cut. We're skipping it. If you want, if you're interested, I can talk about it after church. 
Um, but we have this Exodus generation, and then we have this promised land generation. What happens through their sin in the wilderness is that these people who have been freed from the Exodus are told that they they have to that they're going to die in this place, and that God is going to bring the new generation, the new people, into the land. That that's what God is going to do. And what I said when we talked about this the first time is it's helpful to think of Israel as an individual, as a body. This is the same way that, that Paul says for us to think about the church. It's as a body. And so that what diminishes one part of the body diminishes the whole body. And so with Israel, it's not that God is writing off an entire individualized segment of people, but that he's fulfilling his promise to this body, to this person who, as it relates to God, is like a person or a character in and of itself. And so what that means for us when we look at this, this sort of graph, and we'll talk about it more as we get into the story, is what does it mean for me to leave behind my slave generation? What does it mean for me to leave behind the ones who lived in that place, who want to go back at times? What does it mean for God to bring me in this box in the wilderness time, Bring me into the person who will inherit the promised land, who will go into heaven, who will be and reside with God. That will be the, the nation of priests, the person whom God has called out. And if you're like me, if you're honest with yourself, I think you'll find that you live in this wilderness time in itself. You know what God has done in the land, in the future that God has and promised to you on the one hand. And yet on the other hand, you know these past things. These things which would drag you down from behind. It's one of the reasons why, um, as a church, we practice what Shelley talked about today, believer's baptism. And, and I think there are faults in the logic of infant baptism, and there are faults in the logic of believer's baptism. And so you go with the grace of God and pick one and deal with it. Um, and that's where we land, and so we practice adult baptism. But one of the things I like about adult baptism, looking at this map, is to say that for you, to look back is to forget about the time in which you passed through the waters which freed you from slavery, and all the enemies and slave masters of your past have drowned to the bottom of the sea, and they are no longer with you. And so for us, as we think about our baptisms, we can choose to look back and say, those moments are still real for me, and they drag me down as well. But what baptism proclaims for the new creation, the new humanity that God is making in Jesus Christ, is that we are being brought into new life, and that those things are as dead to us. They're removed as far as the east from, is from the west when we talk about sins. They are things that which are no longer true of the dominant narratives in our lives. And so for me to be able to think back in my life, to know where is that hinge, where am I becoming this person that God has freed, is to think through that moment in time, to think through that space, to find ourselves there. And this is what it means for us to become God's holy people, the people who will sort of inherit this land and inherit this space. And so the first story begins with this murmuring against the Lord. This is the one that they named Terabeth, because the fire from the Lord had burned among them. Terabeth means burning. They name it after this. And this story, in short, is the story that's repeated multiple times throughout Numbers is that there are people in the camp who complain against the Lord, and God resides there and, and sort of burns against them in different stories. And then somebody um, intercedes, in this case Moses intercedes, and then they resume their journey. That that's sort of the pattern that's going to continue here, is the people complain, God responds, 
someone intercedes, and then they continue their journey. And that's that pattern we see in short here. It doesn't say what happens with the fire at the edge of the camp, but what it calls out is that there is something dangerous with residing near God. There's something challenging about having God near. There's this um, there's this tension, you know, here to say that there are um, as a church we don't only take in perfect people, or there are no perfect people in the church. And then there, there's the reality that it's also a dangerous thing to also have that, that there is fire at the edge of the camp as we turn against God. Because I'm not perfect, it, it's worth reminding myself of it. It's not just contentment to say, this is fine, just be this way. It's to say that there is something real here as well that wants to change us and bring us into new life, into new promise. That we're not just playing as we go through this, but we're moving towards something. What happens is in this scene is it sort of burns at the edges of the camps. In the next scene that Jamie read for us about the man and the quail, it sort of moved closer to the center of the camp. In the scene after that with Aaron and Miriam, it's the leaders in the camp that are somewhat turning against God and Moses. What it shows is that is that this thing, this, this project that God is undertaking with these people, is going all the way, it's infecting into the full body. We'll see this peak next Sunday, and, and when the spies come back from looking at the land, and then their inability to believe that what God has for them is there for the taking. And so they spend 38 years wandering in the wilderness. And so they, they have this fire here that teaches them that. But the next scene, they say that we want meat. We want meat and not the bread that comes from God. We want what God um, has not given us. And there's a challenge here in this scene. Uh, this is what it's called. Therefore, this place was named Graves of Craving because they buried the people who had craved other food. One of the things I think that's challenging in this scene for us is that these people are looking backwards to where they came from. They say, you know, at least in Egypt, we had garlic and meat and these things, but out here in the wilderness, we have none of those things. And they're rejecting where they get nourishment from. What Brian read from us from Deuteronomy is that, is that the, and Jesus quotes this in his time in the wilderness too, is that the, the man does not live on bread alone, but from every word that comes from God. That they're trying to find another way to make their substance in the world. There's a, there's a crisis here of, of faithlessness or of lack of trust to some degree in this, in this moment. And I was thinking for us that there's, and we've talked about this a little bit, about how there's something reassuring about the slavery you have. To pick on a couple different ones that I think show up in the modern world is that if you have um, a body weight number, a number you would like to weigh, and you just keep coming back to that over and over again, that that would give you some sort of peace, is that as you go out into freedom, as God says, you know, five or ten pounds here isn't going to ruin your life completely, and you go out into freedom, what you find is that I liked in that place that I at least had a number. I at least could judge how I'm doing. I could at least take some comfort in where I was on that. Or to take alcoholism as another addiction, is to say that like when I feel better out here, I'm going to another place, but back there I had friends. Or a place I could go to. Or I had some comfort I could reside in at the end of the day. Another one that resides large in the world today is pornography. And to say, to move away from that is to say, but during that time, at least I had Netflix or YouTube. Like, and as I've been cutting things out of my life that tempt me, I've lost some of that. 
I've lost some of the fire that warms me. And there's this great passage in the book of Isaiah that I refer to often in which God says the problem isn't that you cut down the tree and warm yourself a little bit with the fire of your sin. The problem is that you make an idol out of the other half of the tree. And so we have these idols we feel back to. Post social media, I gave up Instagram around Lent, and I haven't had it for a while, and Twitter before that. And there's this idea of, like, at least I could judge, like, people liked what I did that day. I mean, as <laughs> cheap as it sounds, it really does. I mean, if you want to read about the brain science of the like button, it's insane. I mean, it's, it gives you a quick, um, shall I, what's the chemical? Endorphin that, that rises you up. And they built these things to be addictive and to over and over again feed you in the cycle of sort of like. And so as I've been free from that, I don't need to take a picture of all this and share it so that I can trust that people like me. I can also look back and just say, hey, at least in that land, in that place, as that slave master was bad to me, I at least got the feedback of 40 years. I never got the feedback. But I at least got the feedback of that system. And this is part of what I think they're finding here is you can look back to your slave masters. You can look back. It wasn't always as bad as you think it was. And yet, at the same time, you're forgetting all the horribleness that came from it. And the comfort you had is sort of false comfort at that. There's something different about being fed manna from the Lord, which Jesus calls the bread of angels, than it is about having meat. But what meat gives you is security. I've planned my meal. I've planned my time. I know what I'm doing, and it tastes good, at least for the moment I have it. And so there's a question in this, is sort of, um, where are we going to be nurtured from? Where is the nurturing for us going to come from as we walk into this wilderness time? And one of my favorite parts about this passage is that God steps right into mommy wars and says that breastfeeding is the right way, not, and this is the, it's funny to me, because I, I think that women, women do so good at this. There's just a small minority of them that want to shame the others around feeding their kids, and it's just baffling to me, um, and, and healthiness and stuff like that. But God and Moses are having this argument. What Moses comes to and says is that these people are too heavy for me. Did I give birth to them? And what he's complaining about is, I don't want to be a wet nurse for them anymore. I don't want to be the one who nurses these people in the wilderness. You take them. You gave birth to them. And so what God is saying is, I will give them meat, but what they are turning down is the nurturings that are supposed to come through me, through you. That God is supposed to be, in some sense, nursing these people in the wilderness so that they can grow strength and fullness. And what they want is a shortcut to get there. They're turning down the nutrients, the place of nurture that God has for them for their own security and their own choice and their own taste. And this is Moses' complaint, is that they become too heavy in this. How would I feed all these people? Now, there's an interesting thing about the two, three complaints in this chapter. The first one is sort of complaining about God. The second one is just complaining amongst each other. Moses complains, but he doesn't have a penalty. And the reason I think that is there's this classic sort of theme in the Bible that if you complain to God, not about God and not around God, God has this way of hearing you. It's a big thing in the book of Job because Job actually complains to God. He directs it towards the divine. All of his friends, who are sort of punished in the end to some degree, um, they all talk about God. 
They don't address God at all. Job is the only one who addresses God. Moses' complaint is a direct address to God. Because God can solve this problem to some degree. But he doesn't shelter it off or talk to his friends or do this. He actually addresses it towards God. Now, this is not to say we shouldn't talk horizontally about what's bugging us. But there's this element in which sometimes we don't think we should complain to God because that's ungrateful. But I think the stories of this and the stories of the book of Job tell us that God can handle that. God can handle your complaints. God can handle your struggles. God can handle you entering into the arena with him. But if you wall that off, what happens is you sort of bring your own judgment upon yourself. And so Moses complains to God about how he will feed all these people. Now this is one of my favorite slides I've ever made. I looked up how tall a quail is. Um, and it turns out that's 20 centimeters, and that meant nothing to me, because I don't do the metric system. Um, but I looked it up, and so if it were to rain about three feet of dead birds throughout the camp, it would be about four birds tall if you stacked them. Um, I'm proud of this. They actually look like birds, kind of. Um, there's four birds sort of stacked up. And what happens is, is Moses, or the Lord says to Moses, is that their desire for something else, and this is, I think, important for us in our own journeys on this. Often the desire for getting something else, when we get it, is its own judgment. When you're seeking that other thing, that other comfort, the other thing you could buy, the other thing you could get, the, the reward of it is often its own judgment and discomfort. You're almost better without it. And so what happens is, is, is God causes it to rain so much quail. The people go outside to get it, outside the camp. There are two things, sorry, happening here that we, we can sort of miss as we speak through the story. The first is the 70 elders called together are in the camp. And God's spirit descends on them. The spirit in Hebrew is the word ruha, the spirit descends. In the next scene with the birds, God brings them in on the wind, which is the Hebrew word ruha, which is Wind, same word. And they falls the quail outside the camp. And so it's the people who go outside the camp to pick up the meat or struck dead at this moment. See, there's there's this there's this residing in and God's spirit sort of pouring out. And there's this other way in which this wind, same word, Hebrew word, comes and deposits that which is our judgment at the same time. And so they live inside the camp, and then there are people who go outside the camp to go and feast here, and this becomes their own judgment at that moment. Because for 30 days, it stacks bird upon bird out here in the wilderness. And this is the place they call the graves of craving. Now, if you're following along in an English Bible, they don't translate the, the Jabroth, um, for you. They normally will leave that word in there in Hebrew, but therefore this place was named the graves of craving because they buried the people who craved other food. They buried the people who craved nutrients other than what God would give them. And so this is the challenge of, of this part is that, is that we want our own comfort and that comfort ends up as our own judgment, as our own sort of fault. There's two final things that I sort of want to end with. The first is, um, we in the Christian life, we think about what it means to be saved 
from often. We can talk about freedom this way too. Is in America, freedom is almost always freedom from something. It's to live your life unobstructed, right? Um, we also, Christians, talk about to be saved is to be saved from something. To be saved from the fires of hell, to be saved from of sin, to be saved from judgment, to be saved from unburdensome guilt, to be saved from the weight, uh, weight that crushes us. All these are true things, right? Um, and freedom has that sense, too, of which unobstructed is freedom. But classically understood, and even more today, is there is freedom for something. There is saving for something. See, if you just leave it off in the first half, that we are free from restrictions, or we are saved from these things, we forget that we're also empowered to move towards something. And this, in the biblical language, is where true freedom and true saving resides. It's not just to no longer be obstructed, but to actually be freed into new life. And it, and it shows up here in the sense of the wilderness time, and the, the time in the wilderness, is that when you leave slavery, when you leave those slave masters behind, in the early church they talk about what its slaves do, they built up storehouses to secure their future, and they built up monuments. And they're, they're putting the Hebrews into this box too, is that like that's what you do in your own world. You store up things for yourself, and you build monuments to yourself. And so you're freed from that slavery to always need to be doing those things. But what God is calling these people to on that second timeline is, is a freedom for, a saving for, to be his people, to be God's holy light in the world, to be God's chosen one, to model to the world the blessing that God has called out into the world. And so we, as the people gathered here today, are not just people saved from, we're saved for the good works that Christ has for us in the in the book of Ephesians, that we're saved to be out there in the world. We're saved not just to be free from the slave masters that controlled us, but to be free in a different way out there in the world. And the final thing for today is the sense of Jesus in the wilderness. Hebrews, the book of Hebrews tells us that we have a high priest who can sympathize for us, and he was tempted in every way. That Christ, when he comes and is driven out into the wilderness in the first three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, is he's one who goes to the place of testing and temptation, and yet does not fall and does not fail. Now this is where we, we started with, that, that this is not just for us to say, don't be like them. I think it's for us to say, we are so often like the people who three days after the Spirit of the the, the smoke descends into the camp and we're like, we're going with God on a camping trip. This will be awesome. That we complain about the conditions that got us there. That we want different food and we want different, that that's us. And yet the one that comes from God, the one who is God, faces these things as well and does not succumb to temptation. When he's meeting with the devil in the wilderness, Satan, and he says to him, turn these breads to stone so that you may eat. Jesus reminds him of the line that Brian read to us today. That man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. It's for us today to find ourselves clinging to Christ, to abiding in Christ, to moving into that space. Because that's not only where true freedom from things resides, not true saving from things, but also the saving and the freedom for what God has for us. To not to try and secure our own future. To not to try and white knuckle our way through our slave masters and diseases. But
but to move into the place that Christ has opened in the world for us to be with him and to abide with him and to be near to him. That God would meet us in the wilderness of sin himself and guide us without temptation or without trial is our only hope. Let us pray. God, you have come with fire to reside near your people. It's a dangerous thing to be near God, to be one of God's people. It comes with a seriousness and a call. It names where we are nurtured from, where we are fed from, to whom we trust for that food and that life. God, in the midst of our own oppressors and comforts, as much as they may seem like friends to us, as much as they may give us a way of being in the world, or tell us we're liked or what our worth is, they're no more than slave masters holding us down. God, may those desires pull us that pull us away be left in the sand, that they would be the desires that take up the graves of craving as we move towards being your holy people in the promised land. Yes, Moses, is my arm too short to help you? You know, at the beginning of rescuing the people, you say that you lead them out with a strong hand and an outstretched arm. God, may we find that strong hand in our lives and that outstretched arm enough for us be guided into your promised land. For you, nothing is too difficult.